What's up, guys, and welcome back to another episode of Not Gonna Lie. I'm your host, Jonathan Terry, and we've got a little bit of a different show for you today, and, and I will say that right up front. I think after some reflection and, and even some research from this past week, I've realized that a two-minute statement at the beginning of a podcast is not enough for me. I spend most of my free time debating, arguing, and researching sports, and it's no secret that black athletes make up a massive chunk of individuals in those sports. I've been aware of the protesting that has gone on in sports for a number of years, but I'm embarrassed to say it's taken me this long to become invested in what they're protesting about. And it is not enough to be against racism. Action must be taken to produce results. I saw an old video of Malcolm X explaining the difficulty of racism in America. He likened it to a man who was stabbed in the back nine inches deep. Pulling out the knife six inches doesn't reflect progress. Pulling out the knife completely is still not progress. The knife must be removed and the wound must be taken care of. But he says, quote, they haven't even begun to pull the knife out, much less heal the wound. They won't even admit, admit the knife is there. I will also honestly admit I didn't fully recognize the meaning behind Colin Kaepernick's protest. I, under, I understood his stance and I agreed with it, but I don't think I really understand or understood why he chose that avenue until this week or this past week. I was listening to Part of My Take's conversation with former running back Arian Foster, and he explained the situation as clear as day. Here's a clip from that conversation. I, I was having a conversation with Tommy Lauren, and she was explaining to me how she felt like the protest, the initial protest, the kneeling was disrespectful. And I was telling her that you don't have a monopoly on what it means to be American and how, how to feel in America. And so when you see the flag and the Star Spangled Banner and the stripes, you get a real, like, gut, visceral, feel-good feeling. About, I don't. I don't feel that shit at all. I don't. And you, and you can't make me feel that shit. I yeah. wish I did feel that shit when I heard the Star Spangled Battle National. I wish I did, but I don't like the song. The flag, I'm, I'm real indifferent about the flag. I don't feel like this inherent, like, I love to be an American. Like, it's just not, and, and a lot of us feel like that. I'm very grateful for the opportunities that I've had. I'm very grateful for all of that shit. But the, the experience that I've had in America does not make me feel all happy, happy, joy, joy, like it does for you when you say, I'm American, right? It's not the same. And and that experience is valid, right? And and what they're doing is they're trying to invalidate that experience. And anytime you do that, you're going to lose that battle because this is how people feel. You can't argue with emotions. Right. And mm -hmm. so you have you have to you have to acknowledge that. And and all of a sudden that conversation had a different meaning uh, in, in my eyes. You know, it, it changed my point of view. We don't have a monopoly on what it means to be to be an American. And I don't think that we should have to, to force people to feel something that they genuinely do not like and do not feel it, it represents when, when talking about the values and freedoms of an American. But as I mentioned before, action must be taken to produce results. I've done a lot of reading about a movement, Eight Can't Wait. They've done studies with the 100 of the biggest cities in the United States and promote that there are six or eight tactics, excuse me, that could reduce police violence by 72%. They include a ban on strangleholds and chokeholds, a warning before shooting, a ban on shooting at moving vehicles, and require comprehensive reporting after altercations. On the site, which I've linked in the episode description, it lists how many of these policies are in use in the 100 biggest cities, as well as information on how to contact these mayors to enact change immediately. And for most of the cities I was reading through, they have a, a percentage of these things in place, uh, whether it be four or six, but uh, very, very rarely do they have all eight. So it's very important, a lot of information 
Uh, and additionally, they provide resources for the study and provide backing on each of the tactics they suggest. Racism and bias are deeply rooted in the laws and minds of people in this country. It is not something that will be eliminated overnight or through re retweets, shares, and likes. I encourage everyone listening to read up on these suggested techniques as well as, as, well as other ways that they can get involved. This episode, I chose to do some research into moments in history where athletes spoke out against injustice, especially stories that many of us are not familiar with. I want to emphasize that this is not an effort to puff out my chest and brag about all the research I've done, but this is an effort to educate myself through an avenue I've invested a lot of time in. It's not right that it took nationwide protesting and rioting to make me take time to research these situations, but I can't allow fear and anxiety from not being involved previously to affect my current willingness to get involved. So for this podcast episode, I'm going to be sharing a couple uh, stories, a couple, two of them that are a bit older and one that's a little bit more recent, but of, of efforts that have been taken by athletes to, to promote change. And the first one I want to cover is Mahmoud Abdul Rauf. Now I'd seen him play actually in the, in the big three tournament in its inaugural season uh, and kind of loosely heard his story a little bit, but I decided to go a little bit more in depth for this episode. So he was born Chris Jackson, uh, grew up in Louisiana, Gulfport, Louisiana, uh, and and growing up, he had he was diagnosed with Tourette's at the age of 17, uh, and he had been dealing with it for most of his life. But this led him to be uh, to work really hard and be very specific about uh, you know moving past these tics that he he had been having to deal with, as well as uh, it helped him play basketball really well. For example, here's a story: uh, the basketball coach offered his players an incentive; they could shave off minutes of practice by hitting consecutive free throws. Every, every successful consecutive shot meant less running and fewer drills. One day, Chris was the shooter. He made 283 shots in a row. Practice was canceled that day. And from then on at Louisiana, he decided to pursue a higher education at Louisiana State University and as a freshman scored 30.2 points per game, which was an NCAA record at the time. He also played with Shaquille O'Neal his sophomore season before turning pro and was the number three selection by the Denver Nuggets. In his third season in the NBA, uh, as he was continuing to find success, he converted to Islam and changed his name from Chris Jackson to Mahmoud Abdul Rauf. And during that season, he averaged 19 points per game and won most improved player. The following season, he converted on an insane 95% of his free throws and helped the Supersonics, helped the Nuggets upset the Supersonics in the playoffs and was well on his way to a star, or, uh, turning into a star. Coming into his sixth season, however, he made the decision to not take part in the national anthem. He would stretch, sit on the bench, or even remain in the locker room, but for the first few months of the season, no one really seemed to notice. And during that season, he was continuing to play at a high level, converting 93% of his free throws, shooting 40% from three, and averaging nearly 5.5 threes per game. But during March, a reporter questioned him and asked him why he chose to stay in the locker room or wasn't taking part in, in the national anthem, and he had this to say, quote, a symbol of oppression of tyranny. He said, this country has a long history of that. I don't think you can argue the facts. You can't be for God and for oppression. And since then, the media request for Abdul Rauf tripled. Uh, the NBA actually suspended him and fined him for a game um, and, and forced him to stand for the remainder of the season. But they allowed him to look down and say a prayer during an anthem. Uh, and when they asked him about his thoughts on the suspension, Abdul Rauf said, quote, My beliefs are more important to me than anything. If I have to, I'll give up basketball. 
And it wasn't just the NBA that spoke out against this. Ed Weering, state commander of the American Legion Veterans Association in Colorado, suggested that Abdul Rauf renounce his U.S. citizenship. He said, quote, refusing to stand up and recognize the unity of this nation as embodied under the flag to me is tantamount to treason. Uh, and there were, was a local mosque that Abdul Rauf regularly prayed at that was um, pranked. For, for lack of a better term, by Dean Myers and Roger Beatty, KPBI disc jockeys. And they decided to play uh, the national, the Star Spangled Banner at the mosque that Abdul Rauf regularly prayed at. Um, and, and that obviously just added more fuel to the fire in the situation. Uh, and nine days after the suspension, Abdul Rauf left the game with an injury and did not play the rest of the season. They eventually traded him. The Nuggets traded him for a player who retired at the end of the season. And his playtime dwindled down to nothing before he was fully out of the league in 1998 at the age of 28, only two years removed from a season of 19 points, seven assists on 50% shooting. In addition to these protests, Abdul Rauf's shoe deal wasn't renewed by Nike, so he, he began playing with basketball shoes with the logo taped up and covered. Uh, another thing he, do, he had done was fasting for Ramadan, and so... Uh, Ramadan took place during the season, which meant his weight, his playing weight dropped from 162 pounds to 147 pounds. Uh, and it wasn't just the national anthem protest that Abdul Rauf was known for. He consistently spoke in inner cities during road trips, talking to people about drugs, fatherhood, and incarceration. Uh, Abdul Rauf still holds the record for highest free throw percentage in NBA history at 90.5%. He bounced around different European leagues before playing 11 final games with the Grizzlies. Uh, and and that the protest or the, the outrage didn't end there when he was out of the league and stopped playing. He, he had death threats by mail and telephone. The letters KKK were spray-painted on a sign near the construction of his new house in Gulfport. Uh, and his wife actually suggested that they, they uh, not move there. And a few months later, it was actually destroyed by fire. Many believe arson. Um, so that was just one of the many examples of, of somebody who spoke out for injustice uh, and has been largely forgotten about. I, I think people don't really recognize that he was Colin Kaepernick before uh, before Kaepernick did what he did, you know, and, and he brought about um, uh, awareness to a situation where the American flag did not stand for the things that it promised to stand for. And Abdul Rauf, instead of recognizing what he was saying, uh, I, I believe it's something that we've seen here in, in recent weeks. People are getting so caught up in, in patriotism and, and you know showing respect for the flag that they don't realize that there are people who, like Arian Foster, like Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf, like Colin Kaepernick, do not believe that it's upholding what it says it will. Um, another example here is of the St. Louis Rams. And this happened in, in 2014, the, the riots in Ferguson, Missouri. Um, in response to the murder of eight unarmed 18-year-old Michael Brown, five Rams players, Stedman Bailey, Tavon Austin, Jared Cook, Chris Givens, and Kenny Britt walked out onto the field on Sunday's game with their hands raised, echoing a similar motion done by Brown and protesters across the state of Missouri as riots broke out, only to be broken up with riot gear and tear gas. This happened in 2014, by the way, but it sounds awfully similar to uh, what we've seen here in the past few weeks. To give you some background on the situation, the officer claimed that Brown was violent throughout the encounter and charged at him before he shot, but eyewitnesses say he attempted to surrender with his arms raised in the infamous motion. Every witness who gave their testimony either chose not to answer or said the officer fired three or more shots, including the majority saying upwards of seven rounds were fired during that alter altercation. 
the St. Louis Police Officers Association business manager, Jeff Rorda, issued a lengthy statement detailing that the cops were working, quote, 12-hour shifts for over a week, and, quote, they had days off, including Thanksgiving canceled, so they could defend this community from those on the street that perpetuate the myth that Michael Brown was executed by a brother police officer. And continues to say, I'd like to remind the NFL and its players that it is not the violent thugs burning down buildings that buy their advertisers' products. It's cops and the good people of St. Louis and other NFL towns that do. Somebody needs to throw down a flag on this play. If it's not the NFL and the Rams, then it will be the cops and their supporters. Uh, I mean, outside of those terribly placed football analogies, you can you can see how uh, the reaction to those sort of protests are met with the same backlash today. Uh, an unwillingness to change is going to pre- or is going to prevent these situations from bringing about real and honest change. But the NFL and 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 the coach Jeff Fisher of the Rams had their back. They were not fined by the NFL. They were not fined by Jeff Fisher, who said, quote, as far as the choice that the players made, no, they were exercising their right to free speech. He also said they will not be disciplined by the club, nor will they be disciplined by the National Football League as it was released today. And no matter how hard the St. Louis Police Officers Association attempted to get an apology from from the team, COO Kevin Demoff apologized for the way it was construed, not for the actions of the players. Uh, and, and so that's just another recent example. Um, but I think a, a moment of excitement and hope that we can see is six years after those Ferguson, Ferguson protests, uh, a now African-American and female mayor, the first of, of its kind in the town of Ferguson, Missouri, was recently elected. Uh, so change, is, change can happen. It's not impossible. Uh, and, you know, we have to continue to be tuned in to these types of situations and good things will happen. Uh, and the final story here is one that I actually had to buy the book on because there just wasn't enough information about these guys. It's the Syracuse 8. Uh, and the first thing about the Syracuse 8 you should know is that it wasn't 8 guys. It was actually 9. Uh, the, the media, you know, there, there was confusion about the number of players that were involved in this in this uh, strike. But yes, it was 9 players. Um, and there's there's a book out there, Leveling the Playing Field, which I'm reading right now. A really fantastic piece. So I'm kind of gaining a little more insight on that, on that situation. But there's also a video, I think it's about half an hour long, on PBS that, that interviews some of those guys that were involved. Um, and to give you the basis for kind of setting the stage about this whole situation is that Syracuse was founded by abolitionists in, uh, I believe, the late 19th century. Um, and it was meant for people of color and white people to, to go to college. But since 19, 1898... There had been strictly white coaches in the organization, and these athletes were recognizing that that their rights weren't really spoken up, uh, spoken for, uh, as well as the rights of everybody, every college college athlete during that time. Uh, and they had four four basic demands, and they were uh, they wanted access to the same academic tutoring as their white teammates. They wanted better medical care for all team members. Starting assignments should be based on ability, not race and a discernible effort to integrate the coaching staff there at Syracuse. In addition to these four demands, Syracuse.com does a great job of outlining what it meant to be an African-American athlete, even at Syracuse University, which was known for being progressive in its thoughts. And it says here, in 1979, members of the SU football team, Greg Allen, John Godbolt, Bucky McGill, Dwayne Walker, John LeBon, Ron Womack, Dana Harrell, Richard Bowles, and Al Newton, who later changed his name to Alif Muhammad, walked out of a spring practice to protest racial discrimination on campus. 
the group would become incorrectly known as the Syracuse Eight, shared a list of grievances seeking equal treatment for all student athletes and a more diverse coaching staff. Their complaints included a lack of playing time, such such as against schools that weren't integrated. Black players weren't told they could were told they could not date white women and not allowed to take advanced courses while on the team, while white athletes allegedly had no such policy. It's dehumanizing, one of the members said. My talents, my own personal desires and wishes, and goals and dreams take a backseat to a thing called race or racism. The group also wanted SU to hire at least one black assistant coach, which Allen said got unfairly emphasized by national media at the time. Outrage ensued. They were suspended from the team, and some of their teammates threatened boycotts if they were allowed back. One of the most famous running backs of all time, and one of the best, Jim Brown, wrote the foreword for this book, Leveling the Playing Field, uh, and he kind of detailed what his role was because he was originally meant to reconcile those players with the coaches. But I'm just going to read a piece here uh, of what he wrote. In 1970, I answered the call of a group of young African-American men at Syracuse University and traveled to Syracuse to see if I could be of help in resolving a situation that threatened their future as athletes. I went with the intention of being conservative, moderating force. My original goal was to help reconcile them with the coach, my old coach, so they could get on with their careers. But these young men showed me that they had something more than that in mind. While their courage was obvious, it was their wisdom that impressed me most deeply. They were young men, but they were wise men. They had the foresight and ability to not only stand up for themselves, but to outline their principles in, in terms that would live in history and benefit future generations. Abdullah Alif Muhammad, a guy I mentioned who was a part of this Syracuse 8, aka Syracuse 9, graduated Rindage Technical School with a near-perfect math SAT score. He wanted to be an engineer, but in his words, quote, they wouldn't allow me to take a calculus course, a math course, because it was during football practice. And the only option was to take a calculus honors class. And the assumption was, you're a football player. What are you doing over here? And I felt kind of insulted. And I was like, you know, they wanted me to take general reading classes and general education classes. And it was like, wait a minute. No, 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 no. I didn't come here for that. And in the minds of many, these guys weren't just sacrificing playing time at, at one of the best football colleges during the time, uh, during their during their time in the 70s. They were sacrificing what was potentially an NFL career, and it kind of brought about this stigma that you know these athletes were here just to go uh, to go play football and get recognized, and then eventually make it to the next level. Uh, and while many of them could have done that you saw something more out of these guys, something that they realized, hey, we're able to make a change and we could make a change beyond sports. And because of their protest, because of their suspension uh, and, and what they decided to go through with, they were essentially blackballed from the NFL. They were no longer allowed to to take part uh, in, in these events uh, and play with a team in practice and, and play in these games. But because of that, their movement became something much bigger than than what would have played out in a, in a college football season. I'm just really getting into uh, a lot of the pieces that surrounded the team during that time and getting into the story in the book, but obviously it's something that I encourage you all to check out to get further detail on, and and even more, you know, the the story behind the the St. Louis Rams with the Ferguson riots, Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf, uh, there's a lot of these stories. It's not just these three, uh, it's not just these isolated instances, but this has been going on for a long time. Some moments we've heard about, whether it's the Colin Kaepernick protests or the hoodies worn by the, the Miami Heat basketball team a couple years ago to protest the, the death of Trayvon Martin, or even the silent closed fist protest of Tommy Smith and John Carlos during the 1968 Olympics in Mexico City. But there are even more protests in these past years that we haven't heard about, ones that really should be catching our attention and we should be looking into. 
such as the boycotting efforts done by Harry Edwards over those past few years, or even Kurt Floyd uh, suing the MLB in a case that went all the way up to the Supreme Court about the uh, unjust trading uh, of him from one team to another without his knowledge or consent. Uh, and, and I encourage all, all of you to, to take some time and do this research. You know, this is a medium where things make sense for me, where, where I enjoy and where I spend most of my time. And you look back through the, these moments in history, these are times where athletes understood that, that, uh, that, that they had a lot of eyes on them and that there was an ability to make change and they attempted to do so. Uh, so something that I would encourage you to do with, you know, this may be a shorter episode, so you're, you're going to have more time than you would have otherwise. Watch a couple of documentaries, watch some information, uh, grab a book. There's so many resources out there that detailed and the bravery of these guys, uh, these men and women that have spoken out against injustices before it was uh, something that had the national eye, before it was something that had public attention and public praise. Um, you know, you think of Muhammad Ali protesting the Vietnam War, instances like that where it wasn't going to be a, a big popular moment, but they did it anyways. Uh, and so I really appreciate you all listening to this week's episode. I know it is a little bit shorter, um, but there are just so many stories out there, so many moments um, that, that I encourage you to go check out and you know, sign petitions, read up on information, continue to grow and expand your knowledge. That, those are the ways that we uh, will grow in, in understanding, and that's really what it comes down to. Um, but eight can't wait will be linked in the episode description so you can read more information about that. And I do believe DeRay McKesson and his team are, are unveiling a lot more of these policies that we're going to see here in recent weeks. Uh, they're doing a lot of cool stuff. Um, and also if you're looking for more information, maybe, um, about these protests and, and kind of what's going on. Bill Simmons did a great interview with DeRay McKesson uh, just this past week, who has been organizing a lot of these efforts, who's been involved since the Ferguson riots. Um, and, and part of my take, as I mentioned, I played a clip from their episode. They had Arian Foster on, uh, and, and he gave a lot of great answers. I think opened a lot of eyes, and um, you know they've got obviously a really great platform, and it's cool to see that they're using it for good. But uh, you know we can't let this moment die on social media without taking a conscious effort to make a change. I think, and I think that's what it comes down to. So I hope that you will all take some time to educate yourselves. Uh, you know, there's documentaries, movies that even go beyond sports. Um, I watched a really good one, 13th this past weekend, which goes into um, the uh, privatization of prisons and how it's become a, a monetary thing. And it's really made me realize that, you know, racism hasn't been dwindling away, but the language has been changing. Things have been been evolving and it's it's made more sidesteps and evaded uh, the public eye and it's something that that was very interesting to me. Um, so I appreciate you all for listening. I know this wasn't going wasn't a um, a normal episode, but I don't think we're living in normal times, you know. And I believe that that it's on me to use my platform to to speak out against these injustices and also provide everyone with resources to. Uh, continually gain information and gain knowledge. So I hope this podcast was was informative, but I do encourage you uh, to to look into these uh, these examples and, and explore them and see because it is something. It is a medium that we all enjoy. Sports is something that that um, I know if you're listening, it's something you enjoy. You're you're invested in, and I encourage you to also be invested in the athletes and what they are trying to say, uh, just as much if not more than the sports they are playing. But Really appreciate you guys listening. We've got a lot of really cool stuff on the horizon. I don't want to spoil it just yet, but there are 
things that are moving, pieces that are coming together. Probably going to be posting a video here in the next few weeks, um, but we're partnering up with some really cool people. Uh, and over the summer, you know, as, as sports start to come back, we'll obviously have more to talk about. Um, but we're going to continue to have these really awesome episodes uh, with really awesome guests. And that's what makes it really cool. Um, but appreciate you guys so much for listening. Uh, and we will see you next week.